I wonder, I want to pose a question to you, or rather make a statement. How on earth is it possible that our society has not reached utopia by now, by the day 2016? How is it possible that we have not reached perfection? How is that possible? We have had thousands of years of progress, hundreds of wars that we should look back on reflectively and learn something thousands of medical and technological breakthroughs, tens of thousands of books. There's been lots of Greeks who've scratched their heads and thought of stuff. How is it that as a culture we have not progressed? Millions of white papers and reform documents line rooms somewhere in London that are supposed to make that we're governed better. There are countless good-hearted people that have lived in this world. How on earth is it possible that we have not reached utopia yet? How has our society not progressed? How is it possible that when you get home tonight in 2016, the news on your TV screen, apart from the awesome Mo Farah, will be bad news? There'll still be bad news. Our society remains broken, and yet it's something that we are desperate to fix, isn't it? Our society strives Our society strives for this idea of utopia and perfection. Our government, when we elect them, when it comes around every four years, they make promises of lower taxes and better health care and more equality. And they'll never be able to stick to them, but they make these promises. And what they do, in a sense, is they promise utopia. They say, we're on this way. This is the way we're heading. If you vote for us, we're heading for utopia. If you watch films, you'll watch... There's a never-ending trail of superhero films around about at the moment, and they're all suggesting, they're all with this ideal that society can be fixed by a guy who's good-looking and has got big muscles. He's going to fix society. And they promise perfection and utopia. And this idea inside of us somewhere is that it's close. It's possible. It's almost annoyingly close. And yet, in the year 2016, the news on the TV when you get home tonight is still bad. I want to give you two things to think about, a theological perspective on why it is that we chase utopia and why it is that it's always that little bit out of reach. Think back to the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you've, hopefully you've read some of your Bibles, you've read Genesis chapter 1. My teacher at Bible College told me that everything you need to know about the Bible you can find out in the first couple of chapters. And what, what do we know about the first couple of chapters of Genesis? God created this, God created man and woman, God created the heavens and the earth, God created everything. And what does he say at the end of it? If we're in a Pentecostal church, it would be all over me now, but we're not in a Pentecostal church. He said, it's very good. And when he, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good at the end of every day, day one, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he gets to the end and he said, it's very good. In fact, what he's saying is, it's perfect. In fact, what he's saying is, this is perfection. This is utopia. The Garden of Eden is perfection. And what did we do? And you know the story of Adam and Eve and the apple and the mistake. We wrecked it. And human beings were kicked out perfection. And ever since that day, this book's out there called Getting Back Into Eden. Ever since that day, we have been scratching our heads and trying to think, how can we get back into Eden? How can we live forever? How can we have a perfectly functioning society? How can we not have to work anymore? Because that's how it was in the Garden of Eden. And we've been trying to get back to there. And there's this notion that it's there, but we just can't reach it. That's the first thing to think about. Second thing to think about, it's the last verse. I don't know if you can put the text up on the screen. I'm going to challenge you because it's right at the end. I'm sorry, guys, but that's that's the way it is. It's why we extended the reading a little bit in some respects. Jesus says to people asking about the kingdom, it's verse 21, 
is that the kingdom of God is within you. People are asking about when the kingdom of kingdom's going to come back, and Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God is within you. And theologians have argued and argued, and there's endless books written about what this means and the implications for end times. A guy called Tom Wright, who makes theology, theology really accessible, says we can better understand it as it is within your grasp. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is within your grasp. And in a literal sense, Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me. I'm talking to you. I'm within your grasp. You can grasp it. But in a bigger sense, he's talking about the kingdom, its rules, God's standards, God's, God's way of living is within your grasp. You can grasp this. But what does the idea of grasping it mean that we need to do? It means we have to actually do something about it. This idea of utopia and perfection, God's perfect standard, is within our grasp. We've just got to do something about it. Keep these thoughts in your head. Another thing to think about, and we will get to the text, I promise. We can jump back to the start of it now, John, if that's all right. Is to understand what Luke is trying to tell us. What is Luke's big picture? What's the end game? And you're trying to figure out, you know, it's a gospel, so the end game is... Jesus dies, and we've heard about him being born, we've seen his life, he dies, and then he's risen again. That's the end of Luke's story, right? Well, we know, don't we, because Paul's told us at the start that Luke is a, Luke's work is two volumes. The second volume is the book of Acts. So we have this story about Jesus' life, and then we have this story about what happens after Jesus ascended and the life of the church, the works of Jesus, but born out in the life of the church. And the end of the story that Luke is telling and this is the reason we need to listen up to these verses, is at the end of the story, we see this church, this precious, fractious little church, start to grow in about Acts chapter 4. There's a few people knocking about. They're looking out for each other. They're getting really persecuted. And then at the end of the story of Acts, at the end of Luke's story, this church is spread all around Europe. Little churches. Little churches hugely threatened by the cultures that they're in. Desperately needing to know the truth about what their faith is, desperately needing to know their core identity. And what Luke does with Luke Acts is he joins up, in a sense, us in Escape, in Cass, the church, the, the, the precious church, this tiny little seed that can be amazing, that's under huge pressure culturally to get absorbed and to, and to go any little different way, and the works and teachings of Jesus Christ. We can see that all borne out in one story. So I want us to ask ourselves some questions as we look at this text as we come to it, what are the core values of the Christian community? What separates us? What makes us Christians? What is the stuff that when culture invades this space here, and we're right in the middle of it, what is the stuff that we need to hold out for and say, no, Jesus taught us that this is what it means to be. Christian. I was at Keswick, the convention at Keswick last week, and I took my dad for the first time, and he looked around and he said, you wouldn't have had to tell me that this was a Christian convention. I can see all the Christians a mile off. And you could see us, and I've told a few people I've shared this with us, we're wearing half-decent outdoor gear. That is almost like the the characteristic of, of a Christian. We're not totally into the outdoors. That's not why we're here. But we need to look relatively into the outdoors. It's in Keswick. So we put some half-decent gear on. And I'm not going to name the brands. It's the brands that I've got. And you can spot them as well. And I, I, what I noticed as well is I was one of them. There's other people shouting around, Barnabas, 
um, Jose, not Jose, that's not a name that's commonly used, but they, they had all these Christian names of names from the Bible, and then I realized I turned around and shouted, Miriam, Miriam, and I thought, oh no, this is me. I've, I've turned into one of these Christians that you can see a mile off. I've got the sandals on. I've got the half-decent regatta gear. I, I just look the same as everybody else, and I was annoyed with myself. And I put a pair of jeans on and tried to look a bit different just because that's what you do, isn't it? But you could spot the Christians. But what, what should we see? What should I have seen? What should have been the identifiable traits of these Christians? And what were they? They, they were people who liked to get to places on time. They occupied the coffee shops. They had Christian names check shirts, and they like to mingle and hang around after, after hours. That, that, these were the identifiable traits, but there is more, isn't there, to being a Christian than just these traits. What are these traits? And these verses, I think, really help us pad this out and open it up. So let's get stuck in verse 1 and 4. The first, the first trait of a Christ-centered community is that it is governed by grace. So hang your thoughts. There's just three thoughts. I'm a very simple guy. Three thoughts first trait of a Christ-centered community is that it is governed by grace. Excuse me, let's just read it together. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. It's a funny place to start, I think, this idea that we are bound to sin. It should take the pressure off a little bit. It's a great reality check. Sin is, we are shaped in sin. We are sin-like. Sin is all around us. I think it's really interesting to have conversations with parents. We're about, how far into the summer holidays are we? About two weeks? Something like that. Two weeks, three weeks? Is it more than that? In the first week of the, of the summer holidays, you speak to parents and they look at you completely downcast and surprised and say, my kids are awful. My, 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 I, I didn't know they were like, my kids are, are terrible. I put three of them in the room together and they, they, just, they were trying to kill each other after about an hour. And the really funny thing is they say it with genuine surprise. Like they expect that when they go to school the rest of the year that they're going to be saintly. You get the six weeks holidays in the first week in, and your kids are terrible. This, and, and, and what the real shock of it is that this is still a surprise. I was still surprised that one week into another summer holiday that my kids were behaving terribly. Why is this a surprise? What does this passage say? Sin is all around us. And, and brilliantly, the teachers that are all so chilled out now. Have you seen how chilled out the teachers are? Isn't it incredible just how relaxed? We've got six weeks holidays. It's like, a new per- it's like you see a new person coming in. It's so wonderful, isn't it? And then... In six weeks' time, or whatever it is, when they've been back at school two weeks, you say to them, How, how's things? And they'll say, oh, it's great, but I'd forgotten how hard the kids are. The kids are terrible. Kids just want to kill each other. They won't listen to anything that I'm saying. And what's really interesting is with my job at the moment, I'm meeting lots of pastors. We, we have coffee, lots. It's, it just seems to be what you do. And when you ask them about their job, they say, it's great, but the people... The people are terrible. They can't get on with each other. They won't listen to anything that I'm saying. They're always falling out with each other. And this goes on and on and on. And this, this, the sentiment is with this passage, why are we surprised? Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. This is not an element of surprise. The key point, what Jesus is saying is, is what? Is what we do about it that counts. But woe to that person through whom they come. Jesus says the issue is not that there is sin, we're sin-shaped, 
we've sold out to sin, sin surrounds us. The issue is, what part will we play in it? One of the good things you can do with this text, one of the things you often have to do with the Bible text, is you get in half a story in some respects. Jesus is speaking into a situation that's happened. And you, that sometimes happens when somebody answers the phone. I don't know if this ever happens in your house. Somebody picks up the phone, somebody runs to get there, and you get all pedantic about it, don't you? If you're the first person there, the other person's coming, you'll be like, who is it, who is it? And the person who's got the phone is always like, like they get all stressed, don't they? I do it. I get, you get all stressed. You go, I'm like, I can't, I can't. And you just somehow, for some reason, you can't tell them. So you have to do that thing where you try and work out who they're talking about. And you're listening in, and you try and put in, you're putting bits of the puzzle together. You're thinking, right, it's my landline. It's only my mum or my grand calls on my landline. It's after nine o'clock. It's going to be. And then you're putting it, all the pieces together, and eventually, without them needing to tell you, or just from hearing the odd phrase, you can figure out what the story's about. You've got to do a little bit of that here. What, does, what are the giveaway signs in the story? There's a few clues. This talk of little ones being tripped up. What does that suggest? What are the clues we can pick up from the other end of that line? Who, is the, who are the people that are threatened with the millstone? If little ones are getting tripped up, the implication is that it's big ones that are doing the tripping up. What Jesus is talking about is, I think, mature Christians. It could be that he's talking about grown-up Christians and children, but I think it's more likely that he's talking about mature Christians who are tripping up younger Christians. We're thinking about God's perfect community, what it should look like. And one of the first warnings that we come across is that there is an expectation on the older Christians to lead the younger Christians in a right direction. It's incredible the damage older, wiser heads can do to younger, more pliable heads, as it were. One of the other benefits of being a parent is you get to observe your kids and uh, it's better than TV sometimes, just observing them play. And you can see the, the way that the older ones, the more streetwise ones, are able to slightly navigate what, what, whatever game it is that people are playing is going to be. And they can lead the younger ones off down a thorny path if they want to. What will often happen is, as I parent, you'll be, you'll be observing the game and you'll, hear, you'll, you'll see what's going on and you'll see that the older one has led the younger ones down the garden path and you'll start to do that thing where you walk up the stairs. And what happens is the older one is wise to it. And she thinks, I'm not going to know. They think that what I need to do now is, is get away from this game because this, this is heading for trouble. These younger two are really going to get it in the neck. And the younger two are fighting like mad. And the older one has gone off, picked up some Lego or a Bible, and he's sitting peacefully, quietly in a corner while the younger two are threatening to kill each other and ripping out their hair. And as the parent, you get upstairs and you act on the discipline. But what you say is, and it depends on what point you get, what point you get to the fight, is what you want from the older child is to say, look, this is... And the older child's looking at you like, this has nothing to do with me. What's going on here? I am aside from this. But, but in, in the reality is the older child has led them into this chaos, and it's just the two younger children that are suffering on the back of it. And what you say to the older child is, this is your responsibility. You should know better. How many times as a parent do you say that? You have this expectation on the older child, and that is exactly how it is here. There is expectation in the community of God on older, mature Christians. There's almost this sense that Jesus is saying, in, in, God's, in God's grace, from what you know about Jesus, you should know better. You've lived a bit. You've, you've experienced God's mercy in your own life, and you should be directing the travel of God's people in a better direction. And if you're not doing that, then it's better that you've got a millstone tied around your neck. It's better that you're not here at all. It's a challenge for us, I think. 
Maybe you can dismiss that and just think that's an interesting anecdote or not that interesting anecdote about kids. But there are loads of people in our churches. There is this trail of damage in our churches of younger Christians who've been led down the garden path by mature Christians. And they're, they're like the two kids that are pulling their hair out. There's, just, there's almost like there's no way back for them. And these wiser, mature Christians that have seen what's happening and come back into the faith and made that journey back. And there's young ones out there who get damaged. It's a real warning to God's people. There's an expectation on those who have maturity in the faith to lead people toward God, not away from them by the way that they act. This is what a godly community looks like, Jesus says. The older, mature ones should know a bit better. Then the, the story moves on, and every time I read this verse, I can't quite see which verse it is, it says, if your brother sins, and every time I read it, I'm expecting it to say, even now on the platform, if your brother sins, I'm expecting it to say, forgive, right? That's what we think's coming. This is the way of Jesus, isn't it? Forgive, what does it say? If your brother sins, rebuke him. I'm expecting forgive, and it says rebuke him. And it's the truth of it, isn't it? What do we do when our brother sins? What do we do when we see sin? What is, what is the reaction? What, what do we do and what should we do? Have a think about those things. We think that it's outrageous. We go away and stew about it. When somebody annoys you, when somebody sins against you, you go away and you, and you say to yourself, this is what I'm going to say to this person. And what you do, actually, in, in effect, is go and say it to another person. You gossip about it. You don't deal with the person who's offended you, who's brought the sin into the area. You go away, you think about it, you stew on it, or, or you do what I do, or I'm more likely to do. You don't tell anybody else about it, you just remain annoyed for a long period of time. Both these things aren't helpful to the community of God. You go and do this, you take a disagreement that's between two people, and you make it between a whole bunch of people. Jesus gives us a really telling teaching, and I want you to notice the way that I'm tiptoeing my way through this bit of teaching. I'm cautiously saying, this is what God says, we are to rebuke. Jesus teaches the church to sort things out. I did a bit of word study because I wasn't happy with the word rebuke. I thought, if I teach this at the front of church next week, everyone's going to be going, you know, going to wagging, wagging the finger at everybody else. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. It's a really soft word when you look into the root word. It's this idea of going over things again. It's this idea of going over things again. And when you put that together with, with the Apostles Paul's teaching in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.15, this, this general teaching in the Bible to speak the truth in love. When you do that, when that is your reason for rebuke, when that is your reason for speaking, then that's a good thing, I think. I remember, um, this is going back a long way, and some of my Christian traits have been healthy throughout the years I've been a Christian, and there are other areas of my life that have been awful. And I guess, I, I guess you need to be honest when you, sit, when you, when you stood at the front. So in my, foot, my footballing exploits, and I'm about to play football again next year after a brief time out of the game, um, I was a pretty horrible guy. At the age of about 18 through to about 25, and I received a rebuke, and it has stuck with me to the ripe old age of 37. It was a rebuke. It was done out of love. It was an arm around the shoulder, but it was real, and it was cutting. My friend had been a Christian for about a year, and he had seen the way I'd carried on on the football pitch. And at half time in a game, 
with just so one or two people could hear. He put his arm around me and he said, this is no way for you to be carrying on. This is no way. It was done in love. It was in love for God's people, for for my witness, for the witness of the Christian football team I was playing for. But it was a stern rebuke. And I I did that thing that guys do when you can't really cry, but your eyes fill up red. And And it was really cutting. But it was really good for me to hear that because the consequence of that is I'm no angel. I'll still leave the boot in on the beware. I'll still leave the boot in on a Saturday morning. But that rebuke has changed my attitude on the pitch. It was a good rebuke. It was done in love. And it has really helped me out. Sometimes, as Christians, we need to help out the pastors and speak the truth in love. Arm round the shoulder. This is not God's best for you, mate. This is not what God's plan is for you. And it's harder for us some than it is for others. It's not going to be everybody's gift, and we might make a real mess of it. But I think Jesus is teaching us here that the government of God's people should be governed by grace. And we need to help each other along that journey. It's the sign of a Christ-centered community, the people who resolve things. Further on in the story, and it gets harder, it doesn't get easier, Jesus says, if he sins against you, this is verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in a day, forgive him. I don't know if somebody's ever sinned against you seven times in a day, but it's very, we can very quickly figure out that somebody who sins against you seven times isn't somebody who's sorry, genuinely. If you did it once and then asked for repentance, you could say, yeah, maybe he's sorry, or even twice. What's Jesus saying here? What is Jesus teaching us about forgiveness? Sometimes you can read it and think, oh, he's saying seven times, so that means... I only have to put up with somebody seven times. And after that point, I can go, right, you're done. (laughs) I'm done with you in my life. Is Jesus trying to restrict our forgiveness with this figure of seven? I don't think he is. I think he's trying to broaden our forgiveness. He's not trying to say this is the limits with forgiveness. He's trying to say forgiveness should be limitless. And as I'm speaking, I think back to occasions in my own life, and I'm looking around the church and realizing that people in in the community of Christ, I've got really difficult things to forgive. And actually, you have to get out of bed every morning and start all over again with forgiveness. But this is the teaching that we have from Christ about his church. We are to be a people who are marked characteristically by our capacity to forgive. As I was thinking this through and working this out, I was thinking about perfect community. Why it is that our country hasn't achieved this level of forgiveness because our politicians and our leaders and our teachers and our police and those in authority do call us to this every now and again they do say you know we, this is the we society, the big what was it what was david cameron's idea the big society was it it was a good idea i think at the risk of getting thrown out of the building by some labor people it was a good idea to bring people together but it didn't work it hasn't worked as, as lots of things haven't and why is that when we are called to morality by our leaders on earth why does that not worth. What always happens? What happens when we are called to morality by a newspaper or a policeman or a politician? There is always the opportunity to point the finger and say, well, you're just privileged. If it's the queen who rebukes us, you're just privileged. If it's the police, we say, oh, you've probably done something wrong. There is always this opportunity to point the finger because their lives, their actions in the past are flawed. But we're not called to morality by the police or the politicians. Our community is called to morality by Christ. 
At the point when I'm humbled, I am at my most proud. At the point when I'm in my most pain, if I stub my toe, I hate the whole world temporarily, the whole wide world. I'm so angry with the whole world. When Jesus was at his most exalted, he humbled himself. When Jesus was at his point of most persecution and most pain, he chose to forgive. We don't forgive. Our capacity to forgive is not governed by men. Our capacity to forgive is by the fact that we serve somebody who was able to forgive us at our worst. That's why we can do it. The sign of a Christ-centered community is a people who resolve things. Second point, getting there. Second trait of a Christ-centered community is one that has faith in the right place. This is verse 5 and 6. So maybe in the same way that you're saying, Man, Ash, this is unachievable, all of this stuff. All of this stuff is unachievable. What do the disciples say in verse, verse 5? Increase our faith. They hear what God's calling them to, and they say there's just no way that we can do this. This is, this is too hard. This is too big a deal. And Jesus does what Jesus does and fills their minds with wisdom. What does he say to them? <clears throat> if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, remember we're thinking about forgiveness, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. What is Jesus saying? The mustard seed, as far as I know at these times, the mustard seed is the smallest seed that you can get. It's the smallest illustrative tool available to you. If, if Jesus was to give us this parable now, he would use the atom or, no, help me out, what's the Higgs boson or something like that. So he would, that, that would be his point of it. Something that we can understand is infinitely small. As small, as, small enough so if you threw it up in the air, it would be insignificant. Jesus grabs something like that, and you can almost see him, because he's such a good talker, Jesus. He would, he would have a mustard seed in his hand and say, having faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move something as big as a mulberry tree. So I googled mulberry trees and roots. I thought, I need to see what this looks like. And it's a pretty big tree, but what's bigger than the tree is what the roots look like. If you google it, you'll see the root system is just enormous. And it doesn't actually go under the ground that far, but if you just to perceive it, you can see this, this big tree that's stuck in the ground with these claw-like roots. And what you would say about a mulberry tree is, that's not moving. What Jesus is saying, you can take something, if you've got faith, as small as something you can't even see, if you've got faith, you can move something that looks like it's going to be in the ground for a thousand years, if you've got faith. Jesus is saying, by saying this, it's not so much a question of how much faith you can generate as what you put that faith in. It's not a question of how much faith you can generate as what have you got your faith in. The best program in the whole world, in the whole world, and I say this clearly, is Ice Road Truckers. If you want to disagree with me about it afterwards, we can fight out in the square. I'm willing to fight tooth and nail. It's the best program in the world. It's brilliant. It's the most simple idea. And they've got 10 series. We're on series 10. It's not on regular channels anymore. It's still on Dave if you want to watch it. And it's concept, the whole concept is, and me and the kids love it, it's, you've, you've just got to drive your truck up, up to the north of Canada. That's the whole thing. And you go on ice roads. And it, that's the whole story. That's the whole point of it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But it's incredible. But there is some inherent wisdom that comes with this program, ice road truckers. Even these lovely, simple American truckers that grasp is that it's better to have a little bit of faith in thick ice than it is to have a load of faith in thin ice. It's one thing that these truckers have learned. It's better to have a 
tiny bit of faith in thick ice than a lot of faith in thin ice. Jesus is saying to us, it's better to have a bit of faith in a great God than a lot of faith in everything else. I think there's a real challenge for us, something that we do, a human trait. It's like worldly wisdom. This don't put all your eggs in one basket. I'm sure there's a better way to express it than that, but that's what we do. As human beings, we compartmentalize our areas of faith. We have faith in different things. Some of us might well have faith in God for some things, but there are other areas of our lives where we say, right, I don't trust God for that, just by our actions. There are different things that we put faith in. Sometimes it's a drink. Sometimes it's needing to go out for a run. Sometimes it's maintaining a circle of friends. Sometimes it's having a greatly successful career. Whatever it is, we have different areas of faith. And I think what Jesus would teach us, what Jesus would teach the people of his community is that what it means to be marked by the character of God is to have faith in him. Even a tiny bit of faith in him for everything. Doesn't it feel sometimes like our world is on thin ice? Do you know what I mean? When something slightly changes, when a few more immigrants come in, there's a, there's a different, slightly different trouble in our community. Doesn't it get so fractured so quickly? You ever thought about why this is? What are, our, what are the coping mechanisms of our world? Where are the areas of faith of our politicians? It's better to have a tiny bit of faith in a great God than a load of faith in the world. The hallmark of the Christian community is that it's one that it puts its faith in Jesus, finds its answers in Jesus. Jesus describes our faith, as small as a mustard seed, as miraculous. If your faith's boring, maybe it's in the wrong place. Third point, and that's what's done. A Christ-centered community are thankful for the right thing. So this is the last story, John. I don't know if you could move it on to the last bit of text. Um, verse, verse 11 through 21, that sort of thing. And uh, maybe a story you know a little bit about. Jesus heals 10 lepers who ask for mercy. And I guess this is the way it is. If, you, if you've got leprosy at this time, there doesn't seem to be a lot of dignity in these lepers. They see Jesus coming. They see this chance for being healed. And they scream and shout at the top of their voices. Maybe that's just what you've got to do. Nobody comes that near to lepers. Maybe that's just got to be your general volume if you want people to listen to you. And they scream out for mercy. What does Jesus tell them to do? Jesus says, go and see the priest. What is he saying? If you're healed, if you've had a disease and you're healed in these times, and you want to, so the lepers were taken out of the community. If you want to be integrated back into the community, you go to the priest and you say, I'm healed. Let me back in. Jesus says to these people who have still got leprosy, go straight to the priest. Essentially, what he asked them to do is show faith in him. He says, we're not gonna, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. We're not going to have a moment. I'm not going to pray over you. He just says, go immediately. Go straight to the priest. Go straight there. Have some faith in me. And 10 of them go off to the, faith, go off to the priest. And 10 of them, I would guess, have changed lives. 10 of them have great lives on earth after that point. One of them comes back to thank Jesus. One from the 10. What struck me straight away was that's quite an interesting ratio. People who ask for mercy, 10 out of 10. People who stop to say thank you, one out of 10. I think that's pretty accurate on society in a lot of ways. It certainly sometimes reflects 
my prayer life. I don't know about yours. I ask for a lot of stuff. It's not often that when I get that stuff, I turn around to my great God and say, thank you for that. What does it say about me or about us when all we do is ask for things? I think it leaves us with a great lesson. And it's, a, it's just this simple wisdom that, that many preachers would have said over the years that we need to count our blessings. How often in our lives are we unthankful? How often in our lives does we just take the things that we've got for granted? Jesus is saying, count your blessings. Be thankful for the things that God has already done in your lives. It's incredible, I think, how much you change as an individual when you're in thankful mode rather than grumpy mode. Lots of people at this time of year will be driving off on their holidays in their cars, and there will be real fractions in the car. There'll be proper arguments, especially if you've got kids, but probably the same if you're adults as well. You're arguing about what music should be on, what snacks you're going to get, whether you should stop for the toilet, who's got the most room, all this sort of stuff. Cars can be very fractious places. I drive to the south of France tomorrow. My car's going to be like that. It's going to be lots of arguments, lots of fractious. I'm going to have to have really good snacks to keep everybody happy. But what happens when you're driving along and you see a really shocking accident at the side of the road and you have to slow down and you're, you're distracted by it and you're, you're trying to work out what's going on and you can see it's, po- it's potential that somebody might have died in there. Somebody's going to be bereaved. Or there's going to be some really sad parents. As you drive away, what happens? You don't need to teach to your kids or anybody else why you're more thankful now. It just happens within the car. The journey home is pleasant because everybody in the car realizes their blessings. People don't argue. People aren't arguing over legroom or pushing kids out of their way or what music is on. Generally, everybody in the car is just thankful. The rest of the journey is a thankful journey. In a lot of respects, God's church is like a car that has seen a terrible accident, seen what could have happened. And mercifully, we've missed it. And we go on our way the rest of our journey thankful. It'd be an amazing place, wouldn't it, church, if all of us were thankful. And I guess there's lots of things we could mourn and gripe about, and I might be the worst amongst us, but we've got one thing to be incredibly thankful for. It's our God and our Savior, his plan for our lives, and the fact that we can be such abject sinners, and yet our lives can be changed around and saved. And if it's just that thought, that tiny thought, that tiny bit of faith, that is enough to be thankful That is enough to make the rest of our journey a different kind of journey than it might have been otherwise. I guess this one leper understood why he was made well, and he attributed it to Christ. I guess the other thing you could say is there was one guy that found salvation that day. Ten people were healed. One found salvation. It was the one that went back and lived a thankful life, thankful to his God. So this is the story. This is what God's community should look like. We should be a people that are governed by grace, self-writing out of love, rebuking each other, forgiving each other in love, placing our faith in the right place, remembering that faith in a great God is better than lots of faith in lots of different things, and doing good things from thankful hearts. This perfect community... This utopia is within our grasp, but only, only when we are governed by God's love, only when we look to him. And I guess in a sense, only when 
that will only ever happen when Christ returns and we are all perfected in that sense. Until then, we live with this sense of God's perfectness within our grasp, within our reach, and we have every opportunity to ignore it and be faithless and thankless. Or we have every opportunity to see something of God's love in our lives and share something of God's love in our lives and reflect that by how we live.